0: Into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Keisha N. Blaine, author of the nonfiction book Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America.
1: Growing up, I had so many experiences where people would say to me, You know, you are just so direct and um, you say things, uh, you know, in a way that's somewhat unfiltered. And then, of course, over the years, you know, as I've gotten older, I've I've learned uh, to temper a few things. We'll
0: be back with Keisha Blaine after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's patreo dot com slash writers. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank-you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform— that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, But there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview, then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Keisha N. Blaine, who is a 2022 New America National Fellow and an award-winning historian. She is the author of Set the World on Fire, Black Nationalist Women and the Global Struggle for Freedom, She is the co-editor of the New York Times bestseller, 400 Souls, A Community History of African America, 1619 to 2019. Blaine has published extensively on race, gender, and politics in both national and global perspectives. She is the co-developer, of Charleston Syllabus, a Twitter movement and crowdsourced list of reading recommendations relating to the history of racial violence in the United States. She is an associate professor of history at the University of Pittsburgh and the president of the African American Intellectual History Society. Her new book, Until I Am Free... Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America explores the life of civil rights activist Fannie Lou Hamer, who was born in 1917 to sharecroppers in Mississippi. Hamer was the youngest of 20 children, had a sixth grade education, and didn't learn she had the right to vote until she was 44 years old. That knowledge changed her life, however, and led her to one of fierce activism for civil rights, human rights, and women's rights. The book is a blend of history and social commentary and draws heavily on Hamer's own words. We began the discussion with Keisha and Blaine sharing why Hamer intrigued her as a subject
1: of a book. So there are so many aspects of Hamer's life that resonated with me. Um, One of the first things that I was so uh, surprised to learn was that she joined the civil rights movement Um, much later in life. She was uh, 44 years old when she became involved in the movement. Um, That was somewhat different uh, from many of the activists who I had learned about in school, individuals like Martin Luther King Jr., um, John Lewis. These are activists who who joined the movement uh, much younger. In fact, many of the activists who we talk about Um, particularly those who were involved in the organization that Hamer joined, uh, which is the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, most of them were college-aged. And so uh, it was different to encounter an activist um, who's older in age, but also who had a very different background. She had been a a sharecropper. She had a sixth-grade education. Uh, And I think for me, I really resonated with Hamer, um, particularly as someone Coming from a working class background, a first generation college student, uh, and encountering her on a you know university campus at a time where I had a lot of doubt about my own contributions, I worried about what I could in fact um, give to the world, uh, you know, in light of the in light of the reality that I had um, such limited um, material resources, and I think Hamer's story was one that inspired me and showed me the power. Um, uh, quite frankly, of someone who was determined to bring about meaningful change uh, and did so regardless of the limitations that um, were in her life and regardless of the challenges that she faced. So that was something that I resonated with. And the other thing too is what I describe in the book as her radical honesty. I was taken aback um, by the way she spoke to people. She was very direct. Uh, you know, growing up, I um, had so many experiences where people would say to me, you know, you were just so direct and um, you say things, uh, you know, in a way that's somewhat unfiltered. And, I, and of course, over the years, you know, as I've gotten older, I've, I've learned uh, to temper a few things, but, but I think I connected with Hamer in that way um, as someone who just spoke truth to power and was honest about her feelings.
0: And let's talk a little bit about who she was. She was born October 6, 1917 in rural Mississippi. She was the last of 20 children, the granddaughter of slaves, the daughter of sharecroppers. She herself worked, had to leave school at sixth grade. Tell me more about some of the really salient facts about her life, most of which make it even more remarkable that she ended up where she did.
1: Yes. Um... As you pointed out, Hamer uh, was born into a sharecropping family, and for her that meant constantly working on the plantation, um, constantly um, contributing to someone else's uh, wealth, and not having an opportunity to own uh, anything. Of, of you know that to not have an opportunity to to own anything, quite frankly, uh, and he talks about. Um, you know, just the poverty and the hunger, um, the painful experiences that she endured as a young girl uh, growing up in Mississippi at a time um, where things were particularly difficult. Uh, It's, you know, it's important to to remember that when Hamer was born and and in the years following 1916, uh, we know that so many African-Americans relocated from the South. Uh, to the north uh, and also to the west uh, through the process of, you know, what we refer to as the Great Migration. Hamer's family uh, did not leave the south. Uh, They chose to stay as many others did. And in so doing, they were um, living uh, under the system of Jim Crow. It meant that they had little um, access, uh, certainly, to the political process. It meant that they had to live their life in constant fear. Uh, it was a period of unrelenting um, violence. Um, in fact, some of Hamer's earliest memories uh, is her, you know, reflecting on um, acts of lynching and, and um, just the difficulties of being um, in the Jim Crow South, you know, as a Black person, as a young Black girl um, with limited access to formal education, with limited access to quality health. And so, these were the kinds of circumstances that Hamer uh, faced as a young child, and and continued uh, to live under these circumstances well into her adult years.
0: I was really impressed by her mother, who you know gave birth to twenty children, worked for these sharecroppers, but was a strong woman. You wrote in there; I think she brought like a gun with her to her work mm-hmm. in the fields
1: did. And and that was something that I wanted to highlight in the book because uh, certainly it helps us see um, how the theme of armed self-defense resonates. You know, of course, we we tend to talk about armed self-defense through the lens of Black power, um, which is a bit later uh, in the late 60s and and 70s. But in this instance, it was just a a moment that I think revealed how um, Hamer's mother really uh, exerted, you know, her agency, you know, how she tried, uh, even in the difficult circumstances, she tried to shield her children, to protect her children, and in this instance, actually carried a weapon just in case, just in case um, she needed it, uh, because she knew that um, being in those circumstances, working on the plantation, uh, violence, um, she could face violence at any moment, and so this was a way to be prepared in all ways to um, protect her her little ones.
0: You could see her influence on Fannie Lou and as I was mentioning earlier she came to activism late and what happened was she ended up not knowing really that she could register to vote and learned that she could and that absolutely changed her life.
1: Yes, this is an interesting aspect of Hamer's story. Um, One of the things that she revealed um, after she joined the movement and and started traveling and speaking about her experiences, she revealed that she did not know until August 1962 that she had um, the right to vote as a citizen of the United States. Uh, and many people asked her, you know, how could that be the case, you know, uh, in 1962? And, and she would explain certainly the circumstances of, of being in a remote area, um, the limitations um, as it pertains to the circulation of news, uh, for example, but more to the point, she used it as a way to underscore how white supremacists uh, went to great lengths to keep Black people out of the ballot box. And so we know for example, um, the violence of groups like the KKK. And we know about all of these strategies, um, like literacy tests and and, and other um, strategies that were meant to limit Black political participation. Uh, And not surprisingly, one of those strategies was limited access to quality education, um, making sure that people did not know what they needed to know. Uh, And so, so it made it much easier to keep people out of the political process if they simply had no knowledge or awareness of their full rights as citizens of the United States. And so um, Hamer uh, in August 1962 attended a mass meeting at a local church that organizers uh, in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee um, had put together and it's there that she learned about her rights um, to vote. It's there that she was truly transformed um, by recognizing that all this time uh, that she actually held the power in her hands she could change policy she could uh, vote out you know public officials who were not uh, serving the interests of black people in mississippi so that was an awakening for her and uh, she never turned back
0: like how much do you think i know this is like it might feel like an unfair question so tell me if it is but like how much do you think she is known in popular society? And given the fact that most schools are dominated by, you know, the power dynamic of white history, do you think people really know about her?
1: I don't think so. Um, And in fact, I remember when I wrote a piece about Hamer in 2016, and this was a short piece. It was actually around her birthday. Um, At the time I was teaching a course on the civil rights movement The first thing that I can tell you is when I walked into that class and I asked students to to give me the names of um, black women leaders in the civil rights movement. uh, After Rosa Parks and Coretta Scott King and maybe someone mentioned Angela Davis, everyone went silent. So I noticed even in that particular context that uh, there's little knowledge when it comes to black women's activism in, in this period. Uh, But the other thing, too, is when I wrote that piece in 2016, there were people who reached out to me, um, who emailed me and said, I'm from Mississippi, I grew up there, and I am flabbergasted at the fact that I did not know who this person was until I read your piece. How could I not know? Lots of people ask that question. How could I not know? Well, the the answer is clear, because when you look at... um, Textbooks, for example, you look at textbooks, older textbooks in particular, um, you'd be hard pressed to find sections on someone like Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, And that's not unique to Mississippi. Um, This is simply a reflection of education broadly across the United States. Generally, if there is a section about the civil rights movement, you will absolutely learn about Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. Um, and, And you will certainly learn about Rosa Parks. Beyond those two figures, however, it's, you know, it's really a question as to who else might you encounter in a textbook. So what I found is when I teach courses on the civil rights movement, which I generally do every year, um, it's rare that a student will walk into the class and say, oh, I know Fannie Lou Hamer. I think that even though many people know about her and more people know about her today than I would argue would have known maybe five years ago or 10 years ago, there's still a lack of understanding. Um, and, in, and in fact, uh, when it comes to this project, you know, this particular book, many people have said to me, I know of Fannie Lou Hamer, but I, I don't actually know about Fannie Lou Hamer. And, and so here is where I think the book will be instructive for opening up um, her life and her ideas in a way that I think people will appreciate.
2: The publishing industry is a system.
0: Books are mirrors into people's experiences.
2: And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world in season two we're turning up the dial
0: she wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around the term is academic fraud teachers in florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired
2: we'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like jody picot for their firsthand experiences you can child
1: proof your world but you can't world proof your child
2: it's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think your book, like, just it it illuminates what a trailblazer she was and how dogged she was from 1962. It's like she went and learned how to vote and it Completely. You know, you said the word transformed. It changed her life. I mean, from then on, she was never the same. She was going, 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 fighting, advocating. And people might be surprised when you only have up to a sixth grade education. You know, her foundation for so much of what she was talking about was invoking the Constitution.
1: Yes. Yeah. This is a part of her story that I find so remarkable um, and in, in fact, one of the things that I did in the book was I intentionally included um, lots of direct quotes from Hamer. And I, I wanted to do this because I wanted people to really hear her voice, right? I mean, read her, the words on the page, but in a way hear her, her voice and recognize how someone uh, with limited formal education was so, so powerful, um, so intelligent, you know, once she learned about her rights uh, as a citizen of the United States, uh, you know, she went all out. And for her, uh, it was about reminding people of the U.S. Constitution, specifically reminding people about the Reconstruction Amendments. Uh, Hamer would talk about the Reconstruction Amendments over and over and over again because he wanted to emphasize the point that, at least on paper, Black people should have had all of these rights long before the 1960s. And uh, that just didn't make any sense to her. It didn't make any sense that we would have, you know, birthright citizenship, we would have the 14th Amendment, we would have the 15th Amendment, um, uh, certainly the 13th Amendment uh, with the abolition of legal slavery. And yet in the 1960s, in the early 1960s, an estimated 5,000, um, so we're talking about something like 5% of um, the population, um, of the Black population in Mississippi were registered to vote, right? That that just didn't make any sense. And Hamer wanted people to see the stark contrast between what's written on paper uh, in the U.S. Constitution and what's the reality. Uh, and, and I think she was quite effective. She would repeat it constantly uh, and people were surprised I think, when they learned how how many challenges that Black people face to simply exercise the right to vote.
0: And she was so eloquent. The title of your book is Until I Am Free, There's I think at least two speeches with a little bit different um, wording in there that she, Mm -hmm. where she used this. One of them says um, the changes we have to have in this country are going to be for the liberation of all people because nobody's free until everybody's free. Can -hmm. you talk a little bit about this, this title, this statement and how it's really lived on beyond her?
1: Yes. um, This is such a powerful uh, refrain because in fact, I believe that I had certainly heard the phrase before I recognized that it was connected to Hamer. Um, and I think anyone who studies, for example, Black feminism in the 1970s, you know, when you look at the Kabahi River Collective as an example, this particular refrain um, comes through, you know, their own writings. Uh, even if you take a step back, I think, uh, in the history, and you look at um, you know the writings of someone like Claudia Jones in the 1940s, uh, maybe not exact word for word, but what you see is a similar is a similar message. This notion that um, when we're talking about liberation, we have to recognize that yes, there are differences as it pertains to our experiences, as our, you know as it pertains to our social economic backgrounds, you know our race ethnicity and so on. Uh, yet we're all connected, right And we're connected um, through humanity. and we cannot say that we are committed to the liberation of one group while overlooking um, the liber- you know overlooking other groups. Uh, there's a way in which we have to take a holistic approach uh, to the fight for liberation. And, and so this phrase, you know no, no one's free until everybody's free or, or whether you're white or black, you're not free until I'm free, was a way uh, for Hamer to connect audiences and to, 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 to let them understand simply, this is not a black issue, right? This is not, okay, yes, we're talking about black political rights. Yes, we're talking about the need to give uh, access to the vote. That's, that's clear, but it's not simply a black concern. It, it is a concern um, that can actually be understood through the language of human rights. Um, it's all about making sure that you never leave one group behind, that you never overlook uh, your your brother, your sister, that you never overlook um, the person next to you. And I think this is a powerful message. It's certainly one of unity. Um, and it's, it's one that forces us to think about the collective. How do we work together to make um, the nation An inclusive democracy to live up to the ideals stated in the U.S. Constitution.
0: Kamala Harris used it at the Democratic National Convention.
1: Yes, absolutely, Um, and really to convey right the the same message. Um, I remember listening to um, Kamala Harris in this particular moment, and of course, this was. In the midst, uh, you know, of course, we're we're still dealing with the global pandemic, but I just, there was something different about that moment. I think hearing um, those words uttered, thinking about just the pain and devastation that so many people were enduring because of COVID-19, also thinking about the context um, of the uprisings, which certainly brought to the surface many, um, many concerns, including state-sanctioned violence, and uh, repeating those words, I think, in in that particular moment, was a way to say to all Americans, "Listen, we have to come together. We have to come together to make this place um, better for all of us because we are connected. Our fates are connected. Um, you know, we cannot simply live our lives as though um, you know what what one person experience, uh, what, what you know what one person experiences is." is disconnected from from another because, in fact, that's not true. It's, you you have to feel something when you put on the TV and you uh, hear the news, you know, of, of another um, person of color, um, you know, killed by the police, how could you not be moved? How could you not be moved to act, uh, despite your background, despite your own experiences, you have to care about um, the next person. So, so I think it was fitting um, that Kamala Harris evoked Hamer in that particular moment to push the message of unity.
0: She was fierce in in her beliefs about some of this, and it brought her in conflict with some of the people of the day in the in the various movements, not just the civil rights movement, but also the feminist movement. For example, you know when she came up against the general trend for feminism in the sixties and seventies, it really didn't include black women. Um, It didn't acknowledge white privilege and she stood up for that.
1: Exactly. This is one of the um, really remarkable aspects of Hamer's life. I think it is easy when you are in a group setting, I think, to try to toe the line, it's is easy to try to compromise um, for the sake of collaboration. And, and, and I think to an extent that is what can happen, you know, when we think about um, political spaces, sometimes people push aside their convictions if they feel like um, it's important, you know, for some larger good, right? I mean, we, we have all these examples, certainly in the contemporary sense, but historically as well. And Hamer was simply not that person. Hamer was a person who um, would not just go along with you, uh, would not just agree with you uh, to make you feel good. Uh, She would be clear about her stance, uh, even if it opposed yours. And she would push and push and push uh, because she believed uh, in radical honesty. She believed... Uh, that she needed to be her authentic self. And so what's interesting is in the example you bring up with um, the women's liberation movement, this was a, an example of how Hamer um, moved and it, it was really remarkable. She could be in these spaces. She could collaborate with with feminists um, of you know various of diverse backgrounds. She could really commit to the work because she, Um, believed in women's empowerment. She wanted to see more women running for office, for example, and yet she did not agree with everything. Um, She uh, held, you know, uh, I think a a perspective on reproductive rights, which certainly ran counter to many of the folks who she worked with. She called out white liberal feminists because she uh, believed that they did not um, pay as much attention to to racism and other forms of oppression, you know, as they did sexism, and and so she was constantly, I think, um, uh, one might say, clashing with with certain individuals. But it but it wasn't simply, you know, to to be, um, you know, in conflict. It, it was about getting them to to sharpen their their views, getting them um, to broaden their perspective. It was always about getting the next person to understand what she was going through as, as a Black woman um, and, and by extension, what, what other Black women were enduring um, during this period. It's, it's quite remarkable. Uh, but she managed to maintain, you know, close friendships with people who she disagreed with.
0: Yeah, and she, I mean, y- you just could feel the greater good that she was pushing for. I mean, she, it wasn't just, you know, white feminists that she came up against. I mean, she gave like a scathing critique of Martin Luther King Jr. She was trying um, to push the Democratic Party to have more Black delegates. And there was a contingent with MLK that was happy with two, and she was not going to stand for that.
1: Exactly. I think all of these concerns um, came to the surface uh, in the 1964 a Democratic National Convention. Of course, most people um, who know anything about Hamer would would know her in the context of giving this powerful speech at the DNC in Atlantic City. Uh, but what I think many people might not know is what was happening behind the scenes. It, it was really, um, I think, a tough experience for Hamer because she was really trying to stand up for the interests of Black people uh, from the state of Mississippi, and she was there as, as part of a delegation from the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which she, ha, you know, had helped establish several months before. And the purpose of this party was to shed light on the exclusionary practices of the state Democratic Party, um, you know, and the ways that Southern Democrats worked to exclude Black people, um, and she... Demanded that uh, you know at this uh, national convention uh, in '64, she demanded that the uh, Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party be seated uh, in instead of the state uh, Democratic Party, the all-white state Democratic Party. That's what. She, that's why she went. She wanted to um, let really the nation and the world see what um, what black people were dealing with. She wanted them to see how How the party, you know, worked to exclude people, Uh, and of course, what the what she received as the offer on the table was, you know, take two symbolic seats, and she said, no, I, I don't, I don't want two seats. She said, I did not come all the way to Atlantic City. I did not, you know, leave Mississippi, come all the way to Atlantic City, New Jersey, for two seats. Many of the um, civil rights activists who were there, uh, certainly individuals like Martin Luther King Jr., Bayard Rustin, um, and others felt pretty confident that Hamer needed to just accept the, the two symbolic seats because they were thinking about the elections. They were thinking about the presidential elections that were coming um, just a few months later. They were thinking about, one might say, the, you know the larger picture. They were trying to think about collaborations um, with the Democratic Party, they were thinking about Lyndon B. Johnson, and so they worried that you know rejecting the two seats would would you know would leave a bad taste in in um, you know the mouths of all of these uh, Democratic leaders who they're trying to collaborate with. And Hammer didn't care. She said, I, "You know, I, I'm not here to play these games. I have to answer to to people. I have to answer to people, in my community. I left um, for one purpose, and I'm planning to." you know, either return with what I'm asking for, or I'd rather return empty handed if that's what it takes um, to make sure that I leave with my dignity intact. And so this was a a moment where she um, was in conflict with other civil rights leaders. And and one in particular uh, from the NAACP, Roy Roy Wilkins, um, in this very just, I mean, I think painful scene, uh, Called Hamer out and he described her as an ignorant woman and I think that was a painful experience because it certainly alluded to the limitations um, of her you know her education and and also her experience and it was a way for for Royal Wilkins and certainly I, I think others um, who agreed with him it was a way for them to say listen we are the ones you know who are well experienced and educated let us lead and just follow just listen. And Hamer's attitude was, no, you know, I'm a leader, too, and I have a voice, too, and I have something to contribute, and I won't be pushed aside simply because I don't have the experience and I don't have a similar educational background. So that was the moment that revealed, I think, lots of tensions in the movement along the lines of class, um, certainly, but also ideological differences.
0: When you think about that, how does that make you feel?
1: It was... um, Really difficult, I think, in writing that sen- that section, I, I I was certainly I felt Hamer's pain. and um, and you know, in some ways, it, it brought me back to various moments of my life where I simply recall feeling um, the way that I imagined Hamer felt, um, being in a space where you feel like you don't belong, but but trying to contribute. And then having others um, either speak to you directly, or sometimes it's not even a word. Sometimes it's a look that someone might give you to convey to you that um, your presence is not really welcomed here. And um, and so writing that, I think, just triggered for me all of these um, moments, you know, in my past certainly, where um, where I, you know, felt like I, you know, imagine Hamer might have felt. But what is, I think, so powerful about the story was that, you know, I think there were pe- so many people who might experience this and just walk out and just say, you know what, forget it. You know, if I'm not welcomed here, I'm not going to be here. And uh, that wasn't Hamer. She certainly felt the sting um, of the remark. It certainly hurt. But she determined, uh, she was determined that she would just continue in the work. She She knew that she had a calling, she knew that she had a gift, and uh, she knew that she could make a difference. And and she did, because the irony is, despite all of these challenges at the DNC, almost every single person who you ask um, about the 1964 convention, every single person remembers Fannie Lou Hamer. It's as though No one else spoke. It's as though no one else gave a testimony, as though no one else did anything at the convention. And that is a testament to how much she left um, a mark um, and made a difference, despite others trying to push her aside.
0: Oh, I mean, just so much pain um, in her life alongside this ferocity that she had to keep fighting. I mean, she was sterilized by a white doctor and it wasn't uncommon that it would just that it just happened to her where she lived or across the country. But she wanted children so badly and she did end up adopting children. Mm -hmm. But that was terrible.
1: It was. I think it was probably um, one of the most difficult Topics to write about in the book. You know, it's it's hard to make sense of it. I mean, it's there are several things about Hamer's experience that I think um, will will surprise people. Certainly the forced sterilization, which took place in 61. Uh, Hamer, you know, entering the hospital simply um, to remove a small uterine tumor, you know, a, a non-cancerous um, tumor it was supposed to be a a fairly simple procedure. Uh, And the doctor deciding to remove her uterus without Hamer's knowledge. So so this is the first um, act of medical violence and there there really is no other way to describe it that Hamer endures. Then the second part of it, which um, I think many people will will be shocked to, to learn is that Hamer did not find out about it right after the procedure. Uh, so it's, it's bad enough that it happened, but she learned about it through whispers, through gossip. Imagine what it's like to go through that painful experience, um, not really even fully understand what you had experienced because Hamer's still thinking that she had just removed the small uterine tumor. She goes back to the plantation and she's you know recovering and, and getting back to work. And then she begins to hear these whispers. Why? Because the doctor was a relative of someone on the plantation, and they um, had shared what they had done. And other people started talking about it, and Hamer hears about it from a cook um, who's talking about it. And it doesn't make any sense, um, but she knows it to be true, given um, the you know, given the fact that it it sort of you know the the news comes to her via someone who is linked to the doctor so 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 it's you know it's devastating then to find out through gossip then she goes and confronts the doctor and the doctor refuses to answer refuses to explain Um, no explanation and as hamer you know uh, later discussed he didn't have to he didn't have to that's what it was like living in the jim crow south Um, just a lack of disregard uh, for black people and um, and and Hamer knew that there was little she could do; she could not really um, do anything to experience uh, some sort of redress or any kind of justice. Uh, and so the the experience, I think, for all of those reasons, um, was traumatic. And in a similar way, with with how Hamer dealt with the brutal beating she endured in Winona in '63, or um, the attempts of at her life. In a similar way, she decided to turn her pain uh, into political action. And so what she did, she decided that she would speak out um, about this practice because she knew that she was not the only one. She knew that it was a common practice um, in Mississippi um, and you know throughout parts of the South. And she decided that she would be the voice to condemn these acts of medical violence.
0: It seemed like her faith Also helped her
1: a lot. Absolutely. I think very early, you know, one of the things that I explain in the book, which I just find such a powerful scene the scene where Hamer is uh, in the church in this mass meeting in August 1962, where she is listening to a preacher uh, who's, you know, expounding, um, you know, from the Bible. She's listening to this and then she's listening to the activists talk about voter registration and it's this powerful scene where you see the, the political and the religious um really come together and it, it, it does so in hamer's life right because for her she she says you know this is my calling you know god has given me a calling and she would draw parallels you know um you know she would quote you know from Uh, the new testament uh, to to draw parallels to to jesus and say that um, in a similar way it was her task to help set the captives free and for her that meant working to eliminate racism and white supremacy that's one of the reasons why i think she managed to push aside a lot of the, the painful experiences she endured because she she saw her calling as um, div- you know, divine. It was divinely ordained. It wasn't simply that she she was motivated. It wasn't simply that she was interested in being in the movement. Is that she felt that she was compelled by God uh, to be this voice, uh, to be this leader uh, in her community. And because of that, she just could not stop. She just had to keep pushing, no matter what she endured. And and that I think is such a remarkable aspect of her story. Uh, it also means that she was calling out uh preachers, you know, as I explained in the book, she would criticize uh, religious leaders and say listen, I don't want to hear you talking about a land of milk and honey. Stop talking about heaven. Let's fix, you know, let's fix the circumstances here on on earth. We have to do something about um, you know, expanding black political rights. That is part of our mission. Let's talk about earthly things because um, that matters as much as the heavenly things that you want to talk about. So that's just, I think, one important aspect of Hamer's life was that she fused powerfully uh, the political and the religious in which of which we know historically has often, um, you know, been connected. And we've seen that through the life of uh, Martin Luther King Jr., for example, and so many others.
0: And she died fairly young. Um, She had breast cancer. She was sick and she was not in good health. And when you realize how much she was doing without being in good health, I mean, she didn't have great nutrition in her life for most of her life either. Um, Even when she was doing all these speeches around the country and there was such a, oh my God, I was like in tears. I could be in tears right now, like reading about her death and how much she did for others, and how how relatively young she was.
1: Yes, Hamer passed away um, in 1977, and I think one of uh, and I have to say, you know, I there were parts of this that I um, that truly shocked me in the process of of writing um, the book. I certainly knew many things about Hamer, but not as much, you know. Um, as I learned in the process of writing and doing research, I was simply um, taken aback by the fact that Hamer continued to push herself and push herself, um, even when it was made quite clear to her that she needed to rest, she needed to stop, she needed to uh, restore her body. Um, She just kept going, uh, you know, and, and it's, it's tough because today we talk about self-care. I think a lot um, more, you know, than than um, I suspect. You know, um, Hamer, you know, certainly might have thought of in in you know in the '60s and, and '70s. Uh, and quite frankly, she just did not take care of herself. She was selfless, and for her, it was all about making sure. Other people were taken care of. So, even in in you know, dealing with diabetes, she did not keep track um, of anything. You know, she, you know, just continued working and pushing and pushing. Uh, even when she was exhausted, she just kept going and going and going. Uh, and so, it I think in so many ways uh, is a cautionary tale. I mean, part of why I wrote the book was. Um, to get us to look at Hamer's life and, and experiences, uh, and, and, and to learn as much as we can from, from her. And and one of the things that I hope people take away from this is, you know, as much as we have to be committed to doing the work, as much as we have to um give up, you know, ourselves and give up our time and resources, we also have to make sure that we are taking care of ourselves um, in order to ensure that the work can um, continue for as long as possible and so i think hamer um you know passed away and and certainly you know one can talk about her death as an untimely death because of all the circumstances that um that led to to her passing you know and, and i'm not and i i just to be clear i don't want to you know de-emphasize the um the external factors and the you know the socioeconomic factors i mean all of these things are important. But but what I'm saying is, I think um, Hamer was just so committed to the cause that she hardly paused uh, to, to think about herself.
0: One thing you did in writing the book was that you you brought us to the present in the beginning of each chapter after the first one where you introduce us to her. So you talk about Sandra Bland, you talk about Breonna Taylor, you talk about Megan the Stallion, you talk about Kamala Harris. You you bring us to the present tense in the beginning and kind of relate it back to her life. And I just wanted to ask you about structuring and writing this this way.
1: Yeah, so this was something... um that I'll admit I was a bit worried about just because it's not the way that I typically write. Uh, You know, as a professional historian, I'm generally writing narratives set in the past. Um, But part of why I did this was I wanted the book to have um, this contemporary, you know, this modern feel. I wanted it to reflect certainly the history you know the past but also i wanted it to deeply engage the present in a way that i think readers would really connect with and and so in some of the examples you brought up um, you know i spoke about brianna taylor i spoke about the uh, you know the activism of a journalist by the name of kate young who played a pivotal role in making sure that people would even know brianna taylor's name um this is someone you know who i encountered you know on on the internet you know i think as so many other people and i just thought it was so inspiring to see uh, this journalist you know use her 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 small platform um and use it in such a powerful way and ended up you know she was able to raise millions of dollars for reonna taylor's family and and she was able to bring attention to the case and 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 really begin to move things forward, I think most people would not have even known Brianna Taylor's name were it not for the work of Kate Young. Um, and I remember in that moment I thought, oh wow, this reminds me so much of Hamer's political activism. And so part of what I wanted to do was start off with a scene that people might recognize, and then connect it to a, a moment in Hamer's life. Um that I think people, you know, might not have been able to really connect with were it not for the opening. So when you start with Sandra Bland and you understand the the tense moment and the difficulties of being stopped, you know, by the police, um, you know, while traveling alone. And then unfortunately, um, you know, the the questionable circumstances under which uh, Bland um, died, then you understand what it must have felt like for Hamer to be traveling Mississippi in the 1960s, uh, being stopped by the police and questioned aggressively. You, you, you immediately can connect the, the two scenes. Um, and then it also shows you how much things uh, remain the same. I mean, uh, clearly a lot has changed since the 1960s, but I think in those um, moments, those two scenes, it forces the reader to grapple with the fact that we still have so much work left to do. And so, I, I mean, that's partly why I wanted to um, to start off with these, with these contemporary scenes and then connect back to Hamer and then move back again with each chapter.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: So I'm going to read from a book entitled The Making of Black Lives Matter. And the writer is Christopher LeBron, who is actually a philosopher, but I really love his work and um, and I just find it to be a good model for connecting the contemporary um, you know, to the past, the way that I've tried to do in this um, new book on Hamer. In a July, 1893 essay, Ida B. Wells noted that more than 50 Black people had been lynched since the beginning of that year. Of these, quote, one man was under the protection of the governor of South Carolina, and he gave him up to the mob that promptly lynched him. A state senator was prominently mentioned in connection with the lynching. No concealment was attempted, end quote. To our contemporary ears, though we may have finally come to accept the unreliability of police integrity, the participation of a senator and state governor in a black murder strikes us as absurd. Yet the very fact that as Wells put it, no concealment was made itself shows just how deeply entrenched white supremacy was, not only in the hearts of the average American, but also in the practices of political elites. It stands to reason then that in a democracy, the key would be voting to remove officials who fail to uphold the most basic tenets of post-slavery liberal democracy. It was for this reason, Wells thought that wide enfranchisement would bring an end to lynching. Of course, the idea of democratic responsiveness is as basic as the idea of political representation is old. Wells observed in 1910, quote, the Negro has been given separate and inferior schools because he has no ballot. He therefore cannot protest against such legislation by choosing other lawmakers or retiring to private life, those who legislate against his interests, end quote. In the preceding 10 years, Southern states had systematically instituted various measures to suppress Black voting, such as poll taxes and literacy tests. The suppression of the franchise translated directly into the complete absence of political influence. And without political influence, Blacks were deprived the means to effect the necessary political change for their safety and liberties under the law.
0: You want to share anything more about that?
1: What I find um, so powerful about this passage is the way Christopher Lebron starts off with an 1893 essay and links Ida, the words of Ida B. Wells in this context to the contemporary moment. Um, how he gets us to imagine being in uh, the 19th century and how he challenges the way that we might interpret the passage. Uh, I just love the fact that he um, not only quotes, but grapples with what the quote might mean um, to those who read it today, and then um, connects it to the broader themes of the chapter. Uh, on democracy.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Yes, I'll read a section um, of Until I Am Free. And this is the beginning of chapter two. On July tenth, 2015, Sandra Bland a 28-year-old Black woman from Illinois, was driving alone in Prairie View, Texas. She was on her way to Prairie View A&M University, where she had recently secured a new position. According to Brian Ensignia, the white Texas state trooper who stopped her that afternoon, Brand failed to signal as she moved from one lane to the next. What began as a routine traffic stop quickly escalated when Insignia asked Bland to extinguish her cigarette and immediately exit her car. In only a matter of minutes, Insignia tried to force Bland from the car as he called for backup. He then drew a taser and pointed it directly at Bland. I will light you up, get out now. As Bland exited the car, tensions continued to escalate. Within an hour of driving down a quiet street, in Prairie View, Bland was stopped, arrested, and later taken to a jail in Waller County, Texas. When she was found hanging in her cell three days later, the encounter, which had been recorded on the officer's dashcam, circulated widely across the nation. Thousands decried the circumstances that led to Bland's tragic death, questioning the stop, the detainment, and the officer's repeated threats. Although Bland's death was officially ruled a suicide, many rejected the pronouncement, and rightfully so. In addition to the many questions that still remain unanswered concerning Bland's short time in a Waller County jail cell, there is no denying that Insignia played a role in her death. Insignia's racial profiling, which motivated his decision to stop Bland in the first place, and his failure to de escalate what should have been a routine traffic stop led to an unlawful arrest and created the environment that led to Bland's untimely death.
0: Tell me why you chose that.
1: I remember um, writing this paragraph over and over again. Uh, Initially, when I wrote the beginning of the chapter, I had three separate paragraphs about this scene with Sandra Bland and. I just struggled with it because I wanted to capture the moment without overwhelming the reader with information, but I also wanted to give enough information that it would leave, that it would somewhat resonate with the reader. And um, I just kept struggling with it. I kept writing it over and over and over again. And uh, I think At some point, when I finished this version and uh, shared it with um, a friend, uh, they said, I think you finally got it. This is this is great. And so this was definitely a difficult paragraph to write, but I wanted uh, as much as possible to pull the reader in and um, have them imagine what it must have felt like on July 10th, uh, 2015, when Sandra Bland was pulled over.
0: Where do you write?
1: I now write in my dining room. And I say now write because I used to write um, mostly. In a cafe with the challenges of COVID-19, I've adjusted my writing. And so now I write in the dining room, which is so somewhat of an odd place uh, for me, but a comforting space for me now um, and has been over the last year.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I go for walks, just try to leave the house. And I think going for a walk is a good way for me to get away from writing and also to clear my head and, and, and to begin to think about um, what I want to say if I'm working on a particular piece.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: I show my work uh, to close friends, many of them professional historians who are kind in their uh, feedback, who are honest, but, but also kind. And they tend to tell me if something works or does not work.
0: How have you dealt with rejection?
1: I tried to sit with the rejection first, and I tried to be honest with myself about the feeling of disappointment, but I also begin to strategize the next steps. So for me, if I've I've been rejected um, from a fellowship I applied to, I begin to think about reapplying and what I might do differently. Or if I've sent in a pitch and it's been rejected, I begin to think about how I could rewrite it. And submit it somewhere else.
0: And what is your favorite word?
1: My favorite word uh, is agitate. I just love using it when I write. Uh, it just, there's something about it that um, captures the movement and uh, certainly the political aspect of what I often write about. I just love talking about how someone agitated. Um, or for some ride or some opportunity.
0: Thank you so much for your time, Keisha. I so appreciate it. It was a real joy to talk to you and such a joy to learn more about Fannie Lou's life.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for the invitation.
0: If you liked today's show with Keisha N. Blaine, author of Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America, check out my interview with Emily Bernard, author of the nonfiction book, Black is the Body, Stories from My Grandmother's Time, My Mother's Time, and Mine. We talked about her being stabbed in a coffee shop, mortality, fear, and the black experience as lived by Bernard. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 320 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Evie Wilde, Susan Orlean, Charlotte Wood, Peter Ho Davies, and Jean Hampf Korlitz. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rabkin. Thank you for listening.